This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Although any age individual can develop multiple sclerosis, it's most common in those between the ages of 20 and 50 and is probably the most disabling neurological condition affecting young adults around the world. The course of MS is unpredictable and its exact cause is still not known. The good news is that we now have a variety of treatment options for this disease state. With us today to discuss multiple sclerosis is Dr. Owen Flanagan, a Mayo Clinic neurologist specializing in demyelinating diseases, including MS. Owen, welcome. Thanks very much for the opportunity to speak today. Well, let's start out with a very clinical question. Uh, Why don't you review for our listeners what are the more common presenting symptoms that we see in patients with MS? There's two or three symptoms that come to mind. The first would be numbness. Patients often present with numbness that might start in their toes and then climb up towards their waist, or they might have numbness over one half of the body that comes on over the course of days to weeks. That would be a typical symptom. The eyes are often affected too, so patients may have symptoms of what's called an optic neuritis or inflammation of the optic nerve, where they get vision loss, blurred vision, and they may have pain with moving the eye. Other times, patients can have double vision, and that can be another manifestation. There are many different ways it can present, and even sometimes patients can have more of a slowly progressive presentation where they develop difficulties with walking at increasing distances where they might drag one leg, for example. So it's a variety of symptoms, somewhat some vague, uh, some more specific, but those that can be seen in other conditions as well. So I imagine a diagnosis of MS, it may take a while before a clinician actually recognizes what they're dealing with. That's correct. Yeah, so it can be a little bit difficult to diagnose in some cases, particularly those that have that slow, gradual deterioration where they drag one leg, for example. But sometimes it can be a little bit more dramatic where patients really notice a huge difference in this new sensation of numbness or they have blindness in one eye where they would present even to an emergency department initially or to their primary care physician. Mm -hmm. What's happening pathologically in patients with MS? Well, I'll try and keep this fairly simple. We know that the myelin that covers the nerves gets affected in MS. So that's why it's termed a demyelinating disease. And this is kind of the insulation that helps the nerves fire signals very well. And we know that there seems to be some sort of immune attack where the immune cells attack the myelin. And that myelin, when it's removed, the neurons don't work as well, and therefore patients get symptoms of either vision loss or some of the symptoms we mentioned earlier. So inflammation attacking that myelin uh, component in the central nervous system, the brain, the spinal cord, and the optic nerve. And just the term multiple sclerosis, does that refer to the fact that this can occur in multiple areas, either at the same time or maybe at different times? That's correct. Multiple sclerosis means multiple scars. And really, it's a disease of what we call the central nervous system, the brain, spinal cord, and the uh, optic nerve. And it tends to involve multiple sites. And that's why it was termed multiple sclerosis. And then we know that most patients will develop multiple episodes. uh, So that's another uh, reasoning for the multiple uh, in the name. Okay. 
could you review why there are some individuals who are more likely to get MS than others, um, whether it's genetic or environmental, but can you review uh, some of those factors with us? Yeah, there are uh, about four major risk factors for MS. Some of them we can do things about. So uh, vitamin D deficiency is one, and we know that MS tends to affect the uh, extremes of latitude. So people who live further from the equator, either in the Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere, so up in the Northern USA or in the Southern Hemisphere in places like New Zealand, there's a high frequency of MS. And we think that might relate to sunshine exposure and uh, vitamin D may play a role. There are other risk factors, including cigarette smoking. So this is another reason why patients should not smoke. And if they do develop MS, smoking can make it worse. So we usually recommend patients discontinue smoking as soon as possible. Epstein-Barr virus is another potential risk factor. That's a virus that is associated with infectious mononucleosis. But most people have actually been exposed to that in their life. So it's only people who've never been exposed who have a very low risk of MS. And there are a few others like obesity or increased body mass index, which is another potential risk factor. I've heard that the uh, disease is more common in certain geographic locations. I've not heard it associated with vitamin D deficiency before. Uh, we prescribe a fair amount of vitamin D, mostly for prevention of uh, osteopenia. Uh, has it been looked at whether patients who are on vitamin D supplements, but who live in these geographic locations are still as susceptible to MS? It's something that's kind of a big area of study at the moment. There's a lot of interest in whether taking vitamin D if you have MS may help reduce the amount of inflammation. Mm -hmm. And also there's interest in, you know, if we supplement people who are low, could we decrease the risk of MS? But we don't really have all the answers yet, but we generally recommend if patients are low in vitamin D and they have MS that we supplement them up to the normal levels. Mm -hmm. Well, MS has been around a long, long time. What are the best thoughts regarding a cause for this disease? So there are some genetic aspects. We know that there is some risk in families and it can cluster in families. And then some of the other risk factors we mentioned earlier, like vitamin D deficiency, seems to play a role. So it seems to be an potentially also Epstein-Barr virus uh, infection. And it might be a combination of those that in a genetically susceptible individual with vitamin D deficiency who gets infected at a certain time with Epstein-Barr virus, the combination of all those things together results in the development of this autoimmune type uh, disorder. Okay. And to make things even more complicated, uh, there are more than one type of MS. Can you review those? That's correct. Yeah, I think you can broadly categorize MS into two forms. One is called the relapsing form, or used to be termed relapsing remitting form, which means that patients develop symptoms that come and go. So they might develop blurred vision in one eye for a few weeks, and then generally that will get better back close to normal usually. And otherwise, they might get symptoms in other locations, and again, they will come and go. And they're what we term attacks of multiple sclerosis or episodes or relapses. In other patients, they can have more of a slowly progressive form where they present with this gradual deterioration. It's usually in walking where they start to drag one leg and they can get into trouble. And there is an overlap between those. So some people who have the relapsing remitting form can later transition into that progressive form. And there's a lot of advances now in the treatments aimed at this progressive form. So we're having better success at treating that progressive form to try and improve patients' outcome who develop that. 
And also many of the new treatments now, we are hopeful will prevent patients transitioning into that progressive form because really that progressive form is where the vast majority of patients with MS have the most amount of difficulties where they might have to use a cane to walk or have some trouble uh, requiring a walker or wheelchair, that kind of thing. Pathologically, do they look like the same disease? They do. Very similar, yeah. So I think it's hard to distinguish. Mm -hmm. um, probably the spinal cord is quite important in that progressive uh, disease form because if you think about it, all the fibers that control your strength and your walking are all packed together in the spinal cord and then they spread out into the brain. So the lesions or the inflammation spots that happen when they happen in the spinal cord, they're more likely to cause more damage and affect kind of more eloquent structures that might be important in the form of progression. Mm -hmm. Well, as in most illnesses and disease states, the history is probably the most important part of the evaluation. But once we suspect MS, are there laboratory tests or imaging studies that help confirm a diagnosis? Yeah, this is really important because there is an issue in the field about, you know, diagnosis and misdiagnosis of MS and uh, primary care providers who are out there will know that if they arrange for an MRI brain on some of their patients who come in with migraine, white spots may be seen in the brain and that can often raise suspicion for MS. But I think some of the key aspects are the shape and the form of the lesions within the brain in MS look a little bit different to some of those other things because people can get white spots in the brain just with aging or with migraine. And then also doing an MRI of the spinal cord, you shouldn't really in a normal person have white spots or, or scars within the spinal cord. So that's a very useful feature because we don't see that in people with migraine or people as they get older. And then also a spinal fluid analysis looking for a special type of marker called oligoclonal bands is positive in about 85% of patients with MS. So that's also a very useful marker. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a single test that tells us this is MS. So we have to kind of combine our clinical expertise, our neurologic, based on the history, our neurologic examination in combination with the MRI of the head, the MRI of the spinal cord and the spinal tap to try and give us a sense of if this is MS, because this is a really important diagnosis for patients and we don't want to get it wrong. So I think it's important to go through, in most cases, each of those steps to make sure that you are correct with the diagnosis of MS and you don't mislabel it because, as you mentioned earlier, some of the symptoms can overlap, like fatigue, urinary difficulties, and are, are fairly common amongst the primary care community anyway. So we have to be careful in people who have those more nonspecific uh, symptoms. Okay. So we've talked about presenting symptoms, uh, evaluation. What about treatment? What treatment options are there available now? Well, really, in the last decade, we've had an explosion in the number of treatments we have available for MS, which has been really helpful to our MS patients. So we have a number of new treatments. And previously, we used to have injectable treatments, which was when a patient would have to inject under the skin. That was medications like interferon beta, which is a little bit uncomfortable for patients. And then after that, we were able to develop uh, some oral medications that were more convenient for patients to take, but some of these lower the immune system a little bit more than the older medications. They seem to work better, but there is that increased risk with lowering the immune system of complications. And now we also have some newer infusion type medications where patients will get an infusion that you know might target the B cells in reducing the number of B cells to reduce the autoimmune aspects or you know prevent some of the immune cells getting into the brain. 
So some of these infusion type medications are really very, very effective and we can really dampen down the inflammation in MS now. And I think this is going to be beneficial for our patients. But mm -hmm. for the primary care physician, they need to now be on the lookout because these medications lower your immune system. So patients may be at increased risk of developing infections like herpes zoster virus or other things. So if a patient comes into a primary care physician's office, we want to be on the lookout for the possibility of infections in addition to new relapses of MS. Yeah. Are patients either with the disease or on one of these uh, immunosuppression medications at increased risk for complications from the COVID virus? Luckily, so far, the data has been reassuring with regard to the coronavirus. There's been a lot of studies, including from Italy and other places that were hit early in the pandemic, where they looked at patients who were on immunosuppressants, and they didn't seem to do much worse compared to the regular risk factors that we know of for coronavirus. So those who had advanced age or advanced disability tended to do worse, but it didn't seem to be the medication. So young people who were on an immune-lowering medication without other comorbidities tended to do okay. So that's been somewhat reassuring for us. And we've tried to continue to treat our MS patients as we would pre the COVID era. But there are some other issues that patients are concerned about, like if a vaccination comes along, will their response to vaccination be muted from the immunosuppressive medications? And I don't think we know all the answers to that yet, but it may be that they may require increased dosages of vaccinations and so forth. So there's, okay. there's definitely some relevant factors related to the coronavirus for MS patients. Mm -hmm. For a primary care provider, we see a fair number of patients who have uh, chronic MS. Most of them are stable. What should we be doing as a primary care provider who follows these patients, maybe on a yearly basis? Do they need to see a neurologist every year if there's no change? Or what should we be looking for and what should we be doing? We generally do recommend that if, uh, particularly early in the course of MS, before that progressive phase comes, that patients do see a neurologist every couple of years, every one and a half to two years, to and have their MRI evaluated, because sometimes patients can have increased inflammation and they mightn't even realize it without the form of an attack. So we generally tend to monitor the MRI and then sometimes we'll make treatment adjustments based on that. The other thing that we like our primary care physicians to look out for is the symptoms associated with MS, uh, bladder function, bowel function, uh, patients who are immobile, pressure sores, stiffness and spasticity, and sometimes involving physiatry doctors or physical medicine and rehab doctors is very helpful for those in the progressive phase of the disease where we don't have as many good treatments and, and managing some of those symptoms can really be important to the quality of life of our MS patients. Mm -hmm. Some of the patients I've seen have really not shown any progression of their disease, yet from year to year, they continue to get weaker. And I've often suspected it's because of their weakness, they're not being as active as they could be. And I've been trying to encourage them to see physical therapy to strengthen the muscles they do have left, because I'm concerned that if they spend more and more time sitting or inactive, they're going to lose more and more muscle mass and become weaker independent of the disease state, just because of lack of muscle use. That's exactly true. And, and sometimes, um, you know, in some of our patients, we use muscle relaxants to try and relax the muscles, but that can sometimes uh, relax them too much and then they can have difficulties. So I think it's important to try and keep them as active as possible and keep them as mobile as possible because deconditioning and things will make things worse for sure.
Okay. And then uh, I'll also mention just safety issues. If a patient is having increased falls, you know, sometimes it can be important that they get evaluated for the possibility of a walker or a cane when they are falling, because if an MS patient breaks their hip, for example, it can really set them back a lot. So looking out for some of those features that, you know, may be brought to the primary care's attention before the neurologist. Okay. How about pregnancy? Does pregnancy affect MS or maybe vice versa? Does MS have an effect on pregnancy? With pregnancy, I think it's just important that if patients are planning to become pregnant, that they let their primary care physician and neurologist know because some of the medications can have side effects to the baby or be teratogenic. And then other medications, if you stop them abruptly, there can be kind of a rebound phenomenon. So it's important to time the medications and some of the medications are better for patients in terms of pregnancy than others in terms of some of them are long-lasting medications where you can give it and it lasts six to 12 months. You could give a dose before a patient wants to become pregnant and then redose them sometime after birth and it can cover them over that time. But uh, patients with MS can become pregnant and uh, we know that pregnancy and breastfeeding even may be beneficial in patients who have MS. But there are some aspects around treatment that patients need to be aware of. But patients should be aware that they are able to become pregnant and that we just need to make adjustments in the medications for that. And then in terms of breastfeeding, uh, that also seems to be beneficial on the amount of inflammation in MS. So it seems to be uh, reasonable to continue to pursue that. But again, we have to adjust medications around that. Okay. Well, as an MS specialist, what do you see as the most exciting, more recent developments in the field of multiple sclerosis? Well, I think just these new medications that we have now, we're really able to dampen down all the inflammation now. And I'm hopeful that in the next 20 years, what we'll see is that the number of patients developing that progressive form of MS will go down substantially as we start to use these medications. Also, in patients who do develop that progressive form, I'm hopeful that additional medication options will become available to slow that progression down so that patients don't deteriorate as quickly as they used to. So I think this is a very exciting time for MS. There's been huge amounts of research and there's lots of active studies going on in the field. So this is a real opportune time for MS patients compared to 15, 20 years ago when we had very few options for treatment. Yeah. And the treatment that was available in the past was primarily for the relapsing kind. The, the chronic progressive is, is all relatively new, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's just in the last few years that we've had these treatments for the progressive form. They don't work extremely well, I would say. The treatments we have for the inflammatory component work best of all. But the newer treatments that we have available in the last 10 years are much more effective than those older initial medications. So we can really dampen down the inflammation almost to zero now in some of our MS patients. But mm -hmm. we have to weigh up that against the risk of infection, of course, right. and uh, potential side effects of some of those medications. So that's a balance that the neurologists um, go through with the patient, depending on the seriousness of their disease. Are there resources out there which we should be recommending to our patients with MS? Well, I think the, the Mayo Clinic website is a good resource for details about MS, but also the National MS Society is a really helpful resource where there's lots of education materials, and we often share that with our patients when they come uh, to clinic. So the National MS Society is really an excellent resource, I would say. Okay, very good. Finally, can you Briefly summarize maybe two or three the most, most important teaching points that we've discussed in the last 20 minutes. 
Yeah, I think we, we want in our MS patients to make sure that they get the MS diagnosis correctly. So as a primary care physician, you want to ensure that they did see a specialist, potentially a specialist in MS, and did undergo those important investigations to confirm that finding. We don't want to be just basing it on some nonspecific changes in the MRI with some fatigue or some nonspecific symptoms. So that's really important. In patients who do have MS, it's important to be aware that their immune system may be lowered, so they may be at increased risk of infection. So I think the primary care physicians need to be aware of that. And then I would sound an optimistic tone that with all of these new medications that have been developed in the last 15 years and are now available for our MS patients, the future is much brighter than it was 15 to 20 years ago. So I would sound an optimistic uh, tone there for primary care physicians when they're talking to their MS patients, because I think it's really an exciting time and we can do much more for our patients than we used to be able to. Well, we've been discussing multiple sclerosis and its treatment options with Dr. Owen Flanagan, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Owen, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us. It was a pleasure, of course, and I'm always delighted to be able to talk to you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.